My best to you May your dreams come true May your father time Never be unkind And through the years Save your smiles and tears They are souvenirs They'll make music in your heart Our best to you Music of a midnight mood Intermingled this Halloween night with tales of horror to chill the marrow of your bones. This is Jimmy Caps with a nocturne we send as our best to you. So here's to you. May your skies be blue and your love bless. That's my best to you. This is for Jesse from Anna Who Loves Him Very Much. Someone really loves you. Guess who? Guess who, someone really cares, guess who, guess who, open your heart, surely then you'll see that Someone 
Can I go without you? I went to London town to clear up my mind, then on to Paris for the fun I could find. I found I couldn't leave my memories behind. But I found you there too Even in Switzerland Your memories came through Where can I go without you? I wanted travel I wanted romance I chased the This is for Ray and Charles and Johnny.
Madeleine Usher sings My Life is a Gypsy. My life is a gypsy.
Now in the Halloween mood, a horror song by the inmates. Headless Nightmare. Well, every night on the mountaintop there's a lady there dressed in black. And every night on the mountaintop she's swinging up her first sack. She'll howl, howl at the moon The moon went too soon She can't find her head This girl, she was my darling We had an argument, you see So she started walking down the railroad track On her way That's a long, long way. Oh, well, the train started coming up the hill, doing about 92. Darling tried to turn around, but her foot was stuck in her shoe. Her foot was stuck in her shoe. Get some new shoes, Daddy. Step on it. Well, I heard. There's a lady there dressed in black And every night on the mountaintop She's swinging a paper sack She'll howl, howl at the moon The moon went into soon She can't find her head When I'm sitting by my window When I'm lying in bed I can hear her walking on the mountaintop Looking, dear Lord, for her head She's looking, dear Lord, for her head. The only trouble is I dream, lining all day at the scene. Awake in the night with the midnight fright, thinking about that bloody scream. Every night on the mountaintop, there's a lady there dressed in black. And every night on the mountaintop, she's swinging a paper sack. She'll howl, howl at the moon. 
you seen my head rolling around here? Wood fire and burning leaves. The terrible, sweet memory of you. It hangs upon the air like smoke. My loss, my love, is your deliverance from this consuming season. But the wind that heaps these ashes round my heart blows too where you are lying and must tell you so. Who set these flames? What powder in the night where everything was dry and no leaf stirred and every day was like the day before ignited this? Deep in the long-heeled wound, what fiery armature began to turn? I do not know, but I thank God to burn. Sunday's gloom, my hours are slumberless. Dear is the shadows, I live with numberless. Little white flowers will never awaken you. Not where the black coat of sorrow has taken you. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. Would you be angry if I thought of joining you? Gloomy Sunday, with shadows I spend it all, my heart and I have decided to end it all, soon there'll be candles and prayers that are sad I know, let them not weep, let them know that I'm glad to go. Death is no dream, for in death I'm caressing you With the last breath of my soul I'll be blessing you Gloomy Sunday Yes, Sunday is gloomy, my hours are slumberless Dear is the shadows, I live with the numberless The Earth had completed another turn about the sun whirling slowly and silently as it always whirled. The East had experienced a record-breaking crop of yellow rice and yellow children. Larger stockpiles of atomic weapons were accumulated in certain strategic centers, and the sages of the University of Chicago were uttering words of profound wisdom. When Fang reached down and picked up the earth, 
between his thumb and finger. Thang had been sleeping. When he finally awoke and blinked his six opulent eyes at the blinding light, for the light of our stars, when viewed in their totality, is no thing of dimness. He had become uncomfortably aware of an empty feeling near the pit of his stomach. How long he had been sleeping, even he did not know exactly. For in the mind of Thang, time is a term of no significance. Although the ways of Thang are beyond the ways of men, and the thoughts of Thang scarcely conceivable by our thoughts, still stating the matter roughly, and in the language we know. The ways of Thang are this. When Thang is not asleep, he hungers. After blinking his opulent eyes, in a specific consecutive order, which had long been his habit, and stretching forth a long arm to sweep aside the closer suns, Thang squinted into the deep. The riper planets were near the center and usually could be recognized by surface texture. But frequently, Thang had to thump them with his middle finger. It was some time until he found a piece that suited him. He picked it up with his right hand and shook off most of the adhering salty moisture. Other fingers scaled away thin flakes of bluish ice that had caked on opposite sides. Finally, he dried the ball completely by rubbing it on his chest. He bit into it. It was soft and juicy, neither unpleasantly hot nor freezing to the tongue and thang, who always ate the entire planet, core and all, lay back contentedly, chewing slowly and permitting his thoughts to dwell idly on trivial matters when he felt himself picked up suddenly by the back of the neck. He was jerked upward and backward by an arm of tremendous bulk, an arm covered with grayish hair and exuding a foul smell. Then he was lowered even more rapidly. He looked down in time to see an enormous mouth red and gaping and watering around the edges. Then the blackness closed over him with a slurp, like a clap of thunder. For there are other gods than Thang. We're sending our best to you at Halloween. From WKIX and WKIX-FM in Raleigh. Aldila is for Mike and Kay in Sanford. Saturday was a special night for them. And this song is one of their favorites. Non credevo possibile Si potessero
cosa ci sei tu al di là del sogno più ambizioso ci sei tu al di là delle cose più belle al di là delle stelle ci sei tu al di là ci sei tu per me per me soltanto per me al di là del mare più profondo ci sei tu al di là dei limiti del mondo ci sei tu al di là della volta infinita al di là della vita ci sei tu Dame's arrangement of one hand, one heart. It's to a girl he calls Ed from Andy.
there was fog in the low places and out of the blackness overhead fell a fine, steady rain. It made little ponds of the ruts in the lonely country road. Hugged by scrub pines, vines, and underbrush, the road straggled for perhaps a hundred yards. Then the woods stopped abruptly, and there lay the wet, softly gleaming rails at Mako Station. Mako lies 14 miles west of Wilmington on the Wilmington-Florence-Augusta line of what is now the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. It is today much as it must have looked to Joe Baldwin a little over 90 years ago. Joe was conductor of a train headed toward Wilmington that rainy spring night of 1867. Just 14 miles from home, his thoughts turned to his family. Would his wife be up to greet him? Even his train sounded as if he were glad to be on the home stretch. There was something comforting about the chugging noise of its wood-burning engine. For the moment, Joe forgot the shower of soot and sparks which he battled daily to keep his coaches clean. It was time now to go through the cars ahead and call out the station. He glanced proudly at his gold railroad man's watch. The hands of the watch read three minutes till midnight. Just about on time. He tugged at the door at the end of the car. Night was so dark he couldn't see the outline of the car ahead. As he managed to open the door, he swung his lantern a little ahead of his body. The foot outstretched to step forward, stopped in midair. There was no car ahead. He was in the last coach of the train, and it had come uncoupled. Panic surged through him, and for a moment he could hardly get his breath. His first thought was of the train which followed his own. He must signal them. They had to know there was a wild car in front of them. He raced back through the car with one mighty heave. He wrenched open a heavy door at the rear and was out on the platform. He felt his own coach losing speed, and as it did, he saw the huge fiery eye of the train which followed him. He began to swing his lantern back and forth, back and forth, more furiously, as the distance between him and the advancing train grew smaller. The pursuing train plunged on through the night, its cyclops eye burning balefully. With terrific impact, it hurtled into the rear of the runaway coach, completely demolishing it. In the collision, Joe's head was severed from his body. A witness said that his lantern waved desperately until the last, then rose in the air and inscribing a wide arc, landed in a nearby swamp. It flickered there for a moment, and then the flame continued, burning clear and strong. Not long afterward, lovers strolling near the railroad late at night reported seeing a strange light along the tracks. It would start about a mile from Mako Station, just a flicker over the left rail. Then it would advance, growing brighter as it came up the track. Faster and faster it seemed to go, swinging from side to side. There would be a pause and it would start backwards, for a moment hanging suspended where it had first appeared, then it would be gone. 
Watchers over the years have said that the light is Joe Baldwin's lantern and that Joe is hunting for his head. Once the light was gone for over a month, but it always comes back. Joe seems to prefer dark, rainy nights. After roads were built in the area, skeptics maintained that the light was merely a reflection. Several years ago, all traffic in the area was blocked off while a group of observers watched for the light. Joe appeared, swinging his lantern as usual. A short time before, a company of Fort Bragg soldiers armed with rifles decided to put an end to Joe's nightly excursions. His lantern eluded both guns and soldiers. Over the years, railroad engineers have sometimes mistaken Joe's light for a real signal. As a result, the railroad ordered its signal men at Mako to use two lanterns, one red and one green. And so, after 90 years, Joe Baldwin still haunts the track at Mako, looking for his head. stays away, old rocking chair will get me, all I do is pray, the Lord above will let me walk in the sun once more, can't go on, everything I had is gone, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Keeps raining all the time
raining all the time, the time, keeps raining all the time. We're sending our best to you at Halloween. From WKIX and WKIX-FM in Raleigh. There are few men who do not hold within them some experience which time cannot erase. For some men, that experience is a woman. And for Burke Hardison, it will always be Lydia nor is he the only man who has encountered her. Since 1923, this young lady has appeared from time to time at her favorite spot. Men who have tried to help her have all told the same story afterward. The story has been one of complete bafflement and mystery. Burke Hardison met Lydia late one rainy night in the early spring of 1924, he was on his way back from Raleigh to his home in High Point. The evening had been spent with friends made during his college years at State, and it must have been almost two o'clock as he neared the little community of Jamestown. All around him, the countryside slumbered under a bellowing blanket of fog. Even the most obvious landmarks had silently vanished, and there was an air of unreality about the misty world through which he drove. Along with this air of unreality came the feeling that all other life had ceased to exist save himself. For miles there had been no other cars, but his eyes still strained as he peered through the mist for taillights ahead. In front of him loomed the Highway 70 underpass. For a moment the fog seemed to clear. He was no longer alone. At the mouth of the underpass stood the slight, graceful figure of a girl, dressed in a white evening gown. Her arm was flung upward, signaling desperately for him to stop. Even before he pulled to the side of the road, he knew she must be in some terrible distress. He opened the door of the car as she came toward him. Please, will you help me get to High Point, pleaded a soft, tear-laden voice. I'm on my way there now, and I'll be glad to help you, replied Burke. A gust of fog entered the car as the girl slid in beside him. He could see the pale, pale blur of a lovely face surrounded by a halo of dark hair, and the diaphanous cloud of her white dress rested on the seat. After she'd given him the address of a street he was vaguely familiar with, they drove in silence, nearing High Point, he felt that he must find out more about her and began to question her. Her name was Lydia, and if there were more than that, it faded into the fog. Her words seemed almost detached and so faint that he could hear them above the sound of the motor only with the greatest effort. She seemed deeply distressed at the late hour and afraid her mother would be worried about her. Gradually he gathered that she had been to a dance that evening in Raleigh. But what had happened and how she came to be standing alone in the fog at the underpass, she either could not 
or would not tell him. At times, she failed to answer him at all. Why do you question me, she finally asked. Nothing is important now but that I'm going home. So nothing more was said. He found the street she had given him, and there stood the house on the corner, just as she'd described it. Well, he would not bother her further. Opening his door, he got out and walked around to the other side of the car. Then he held the door open for his young passenger. But as he stared into the blackness of the car's interior, he gasped in amazement. The car was empty. His companion, gone. Nor was there a sign of any living being near it. The only movement was that of the fog as it swirled in front of his headlights. For a moment, he stood as if dazed with his hand still on the door. Then such a cold chill swept over him that he slammed the car door to and pulled his coat close around him. Perhaps she had slipped into the house without his seeing her. He knew that he must find out. It was several minutes before his knock was answered, and then it was not Lydia who opened the door. But the resemblance was there and the face of the old lady who confronted him. I'm Burke Hardison, and I just brought your daughter home, but she seems to have disappeared. Is she here? asked Burke. For a moment, the old lady didn't answer. He could see the bright shimmer of tears welling into her eyes behind her glasses, and she seemed to crumble before him. Are you trying to play some cruel joke on me, she said. His bafflement turned to anger, and... He would have answered harshly, but the tragedy in her face was genuine. He explained how the young girl had stopped him at the underpass and begged him to take her home. And then he told how he had arrived at this address only to open the door of a car and find she had disappeared. I had an only daughter named Lydia, said the old lady. A year ago, she was killed in a wreck near the underpass, and she was coming home from a dance. Tears slid helplessly down her cheeks. This is not the first time people have tried to bring her home. But somehow, she never quite gets here. more music on our best to you following the news. For now, this is Jimmy Cap saying... That's my best to you.
Remember this Each new day's a kiss Fly not yet The hour of midnight draws near And Halloween's most horrible creatures Are everywhere So here's to you May your skies be blue And your love bless That's my best to you A little later we'll have some of the ghost stories of Halloween. Just now our opening song has... No more claim to Halloween than coming from a movie with a bit of horror in it. Don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. He'll love you till he dies. Oh, hold him, darling. Please hold him tight. And brush the tear from your eyes You weep because you had a dream last night You dream that he said goodbye He held two roses within his hand Two roses he gave to you his passion the white rose his love so true hush hush sweet Charlotte Charlotte don't you cry hush hush sweet Charlotte he love you He shall die Yes, every night When he's gone The wind will sing To you this lullaby Sweet Charlotte Was loved by John Hush, hush Sweet Charlotte Charlotte Don't you cry Hush, sweet Charlotte, he'll love you till he dies. Remember Frank Sinatra's bit about Witchcraft. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft And I've got no defense for it The heat is too intense for it What good would common sense for it do? Cause 
Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft And although I know It's strictly taboo When you arouse the need in me My heart says yes indeed in me Proceed with what you're leading me to It's such an ancient pitch But one I wouldn't switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you Thank you. 
one of John Gary's best, Once Upon a Time. Once upon a time, a girl with moonlight in her eyes, put her hand in mine and said she loved me so. Eyebrows were raised and tongues wagged whenever the name of Adam Springs was mentioned. Residents of the little town of McAdenville, which hugged the banks of the muddy South Fork, were alternately shocked and intrigued by its wealthy bachelor. Mothers warned their daughters about this dark-eyed, somewhat fierce-looking young man's reputation. Daughters who, for the most part, would have given their right arm for a serious glance from Adam. After all, what more exciting fate than to be chosen as the mistress of his fine home? As for Adam, the sardonic gleam in his eyes made a mockery of the Quaker garb in the habit of donning. No Quaker was Adam Springs, and he didn't care who knew it, much to the chagrin of his family. Except for rare visits, they left him to his own devices. Perhaps they believed in the old saying, you can't touch pitch and not be defiled. 
At any event, they did not care to be stained by association with the family's black sheep. With the exception of women, Adam's greatest enthusiasm was fishing. He took great care in supervising the building of a large fish trap on the river. The fish trap became, in time, Adam's all-engrossing interest. As he grew older, he would fly into a rage on discovering that a villager, perhaps a venturesome slave, had been robbing his trap. By night, he prowled the bank of the river, lantern in hand, to check on the safety of his catch. Sometimes there would be a furtive scuffling in the underbrush near the trap as the swinging lantern approached, and he would slip and stumble on the damp red earth as he beat his way through the brush in an attempt to catch the culprit. Over the years, the villagers' talk grew less, and Adam's temper grew worse. Gradually, it came to be old Adam when his name was mentioned. He tended his fish trap and minded little else. One hot summer night, Adam twisted and tossed with pain on his fine mahogany bed. Wisps of white hair clung wetly to the parchment-like forehead. Near him stood his two most faithful slaves, Miss Margaret and Amos. Shall I get the reverend, Master Adam, said Amos. Hang the preacher, replied Adam. Just swear that you'll bury me standing up. I'll watch that fish trap forever, and cursed be any man who touches it. After old Adam's death, the land along the river's edge was sold. His precious trap was torn out and a dam built to furnish power for a cotton mill. On a hill overlooking the river, a prominent Charlotte businessman built a summer home for his family. Jokingly, they scoffed at the villagers' tales of old Adam's nocturnal walks with his lantern. Sometimes Jack, the son, would frighten his sister Anne with stories that he had encountered Adam's ghost in the dark halls of the house. One warm summer night, the family sat on the front porch, listening to the singing of the crickets and catching an occasional humid breath of air from the river. Jack's voice called down to Anne on the porch, asking her to come up to his room. She went into the darkness of the house where the lamps had been put out to make it cooler. Groping her way along, Anne went down the hall to his room and opened the door. There at the north end of the room stood a figure whose ruffled shirt and tall Quaker hat were illuminated by the soft, eerie light of a lantern. Screaming and on the verge of hysteria, she ran back to the porch and flung herself into her father's arms. From that day on, there was no scoffing about the ghost nor was there any pleasure left in that house for any of them. In 1938, Anne's father made a business trip back to McCaddenville. At the station, he fell into conversation with a group of men. Old Adam is still walking, one told him. Yes, said another, we saw him last night when we were fishing down by the mill dam. A light came wandering down the hill from the old cemetery. When the light got down to the river bank, we saw the figure. We knowed it was Adam, cause of the tall hat. He was walking up and down the bank, looking for his fish trap. And about halfway back up the hill, the light just faded out. At the very top of that hill, high above the river's red waters, is a tiny, rock-enclosed cemetery. A steep and winding path, almost lost in the thick undergrowth, leads up to it. Brightly colored poisonous mushrooms and lush fungus growths flourish in the small cemetery. The headstones are broken, their faded inscriptions illegible. 
Somewhere within this burial ground, just a few feet beneath the soft earth, Adam stands, forever watching. Could the brilliant red mushroom growing through a broken tombstone reflect the flush of his angry face? The only sound is that of water rushing, rushing over the dam where his first fish trap once was. Is even the grave sometimes unable to contain the restless, stalking spirit of Adam Springs? It has sometimes been said that a doctor buries his mistakes. The same might occasionally be suspected of a court of law. For there are times when the true verdict of guilt or innocence lies only with God and the accused. The story is told in Rutherford of a man who, although he was hanged, pronounced dead and buried, made good his threat to haunt his executioners. On November 9, 1880, was an unseasonably hot day, but the Rutherton courtroom was full to overflowing. Men leaned against the wall at the back, chewing tobacco and listening with rapt attention. Women sat fanning the flies from the babies in their laps, and in the witness chair sat the man whom they had all come to see. He was a large fellow, ruddy of complexion, the lower part of his face covered by a luxuriant reddish-brown beard. His name was Daniel Keith and a few would have dared to cross him when he had his freedom. But this morning, small boys had spat at him as the sheriff took him from the jail to the courthouse, and men who ordinarily would have feared him gazed with contempt as he passed. Daniel Keith was on trial for one of the most unprovoked and brutal murders in the history of western North Carolina. A little Negro girl of eight had been found early one February evening, dying from blows she had been dealt about the head with a rock. Keith had been seen near the child's home in the late afternoon. A number of witnesses testified that on that day he had been drinking. When the sheriff arrested him at his home about nine o'clock that night, according to the officer's own testimony, he seemed to be sober. But among some clothing in a pile on the back porch was found a badly blood-stained shirt. Protesting that the shirt had been worn while he was cleaning rabbits, Keith denied any knowledge of the child's murder. He came quietly enough with the sheriff, but as the day drew near for his trial, angry shouts could be heard from the direction of the jail. Hours of questioning on the part of the sheriff availed nothing but the steadfast retort, I ain't killed nobody, and them what says I have will be snared in their own devilment. Feeling ran high, and among the men gathered in little knots here and there along Main Street could be heard comments like, they shouldn't even waste time trying a fellow like that. He needs to be took out of town hung. But pent-up emotions were dissipated in talk, and the law took its course. Now on the morning of the trial, the accused left the stand, declaring his innocence as vehemently as ever. What innocent little child gathering the dewy blossoms of spring, the prosecutor asked the jury, what flower of southern womanhood, nay, what one of us can be safe from attack by such a monster as this creature before us? Ah, gentlemen, a mad beast deserves but one fate. In the name of that young life which he so mercilessly struck down, I implore you to find Daniel Keith guilty of murder. Keith half rose from his seat, 
evidently about to shout something as the prosecutor. But the sheriff restrained him. There was a half-hour recess, and when court convened again, the jury filed back to their seats. A murmur of anticipation swept through the crowded courtroom. We find the prisoner at the bar, Daniel Keith, guilty of the murder whereof he stands charged. A shudder seemed to ripple through the massive body of Daniel Keith, and his hands covered his face as shouting and applause broke out in the courtroom. The judge rapped his gavel sharply. Have you anything to say as to why sentence should not be pronounced, Daniel Keith? asked the presiding judge. Keith merely shook his head without lifting it from his hands. Then it is the judgment of this court that the prisoner, Daniel Keith, be remanded to the common jail of this county and there remain until the 11th day of December next and that he then be taken by the said N.E. Walker, High Sheriff of aforesaid, from the jail to the place of execution between the hours of 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon and there be hanged by the neck until he is dead dead, dead, and the words dead, dead, dead seemed to resound and reverberate in the brain of Daniel Keith, echoing back at him from every wall of the courtroom. On the afternoon of the 10th of December, the day before Keith was to be hanged, buggies and wagons full of whole families began to arrive in Rutherfordton. They had come to watch the monster hanged and to enjoy the opportunity for socializing and chatting with friends which this macabre occasion afforded. When Keith called the sheriff to his cell early in the morning of the 11th, the sheriff expected an attempt at trickery or some act of violence from his prisoner. He was totally unprepared for the profound calm of the huge bearded man facing him from behind the bars of the cell door. The soul of an innocent man don't rest, sheriff said Keith, nor can mine till I prove to you and them on the jury that I'm going blameless to the gallows. The sheriff winked good-humoredly at one of his deputies standing nearby. It was midday when they were ready to take him from the jail and by wagon over to the gallows field. The death cart was slowly drawn through the overflowing streets of Rutherford. The prisoner sat between the sheriff and his deputy looking socially or stoically ahead of him seemingly bearing neither the jeers directed at him or the sheriff's jocular responses to the greetings of friends. At one o'clock, Daniel Keith was hanged. A few hours later, the crowds had dispersed and an early dusk descended on almost empty streets. The monster had been effectively disposed of and travelers, content that justice had been done, jogged homeward discussing the events of the day. Talk of the hanging gradually died down, but as it did, there was something new to discuss. The appearance of the shadow. Was it a flitting, unsubstantial apparition which dodged around the corners of the old jail? Not at all. The shadow appeared on the south wall of the jail and remained there for all to see. It was the unmistakable outline of a hanged man, a large, burly man. As someone commented, it would take a man as big as Dan Keith to cast such a shadow. Such numbers of people came to look at the shadow and ask questions that it finally became a source of embarrassment to the sheriff. He and his deputy tried to scrub it off. Then they tried to paint it off. But whatever the methods, the shadow was not to be discouraged. Finally, the jail was sold and became a private home. The shadow stayed, and so many people stopped to inquire about it that the owner planted ivy over the wall. 
1949, the building was remodeled from a home into an office building. In the process, it was given several coats of paint. The shadow on the wall did not return, at least not as yet. But many Rutherfordton people say that one day they will look up at the south wall of the old jail and the shadowy outline of Daniel Keith's swinging figure will be there once again. We're sending our best to you on Halloween. From WKIX and WKIX-FM in Raleigh.
too. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in heaven and in earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell the whole story. It's impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. Passion? There was none. I loved the old man. He'd never wronged me. He'd never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution. With what foresight. With what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed. Closed so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly. Very, very slowly. So that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him. 
calling him by name in a hearty tone, inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no, his room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he need not see the opening in the door and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening. The old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had heard it turned in his bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions. But he had found all in vain. All in vain because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel 
although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple, dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damn spot. And I have not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses. Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the courage of a soldier. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet... For some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the meeting grew louder. The beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud shriek, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He screamed once. Only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. Then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall at length that ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me.
no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stains of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. When I had made an end to these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking on the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until, at length, I found that the noise was not in my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, 
What could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over and over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no! No, they heard! They suspected! They knew! They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think! But anything was better than this agony! Anything more tolerable than this derision! I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer! I felt that I must scream or die! And now again, hark! Louder! 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 This has been our ghostly best to you on Halloween, chosen from the best in the world of horror literature and sent for your bewilderment. Now, with David Lawrence in master control, this is Jimmy Capps signing the program, Trick or Treat. So here's to you, may your skies be blue. And your love last, that's my best.